in our studies through this book. And I paused because we were dealing with appointing elders and some other things that I thought was needful. And so now I want to go back and study this. Every subject that's mentioned in Scripture should not be off limits. Every stu subject that's in the Bible ought to be studied. And so this is one of them. It ought not be taboo, although sometimes it can be controversial among some, but it shouldn't be that way. We ought to be able to discuss it. A while back, many years ago, I thought I had a good handle on this subject. I thought I understood it. And as I began to re-study it, as we should, we should make sure that we have an understanding of it. And as I was looking at it a little more closely, I realized I had some false assumptions. And the same would be true today if after you hear what I have to say about it and you think that I have still missed it, then I still want you to believe that you could come to me, we can discuss it. Because I'm still trying to follow what the passage teaches. And that's all I really want to do. And all of us should want to do that. Now, we need to have a good attitude about it. We need to show the love that he mentions in chapter 13 of the book. We do need to be humble. We do need to realize that truth is not determined by the majority. It's not determined by what most people think or what people that I look up to think. It's not determined by what I want. It's not determined by my preference or what uh, the way I wish it would be or not be. It's not determined by whether this will make me feel uncomfortable or not. Or, you know, th those things are not what determines the meaning of a passage. And it's not determined by in potential inconsistencies that I might see in some who have a certain view of this subject. You know, there might be someone who might have a correct view of the passage, but then when you look at their life, they might not be consistent in what they're practicing. So that doesn't necessarily determine what the passage is saying again. And so when we talk about this and when we look at it, let's try to have these attitudes as we look at it. First, let's just read the passage and get it before us so that then we can go back and look and see what it's saying. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I delivered them unto you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man, praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven." For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, forasmuch as he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. 
For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the, man, the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman. But all things of God. Judging yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom neither the churches of God. Now first, when we want to try to talk about this, in verse 1, you need to recognize that the chapter breaks are put there by men. And so it's quite possible that verse 1 may go with the previous thought. We talked about in chapter 10 how that Paul is saying in verse 33 even as I please all men and all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many. Paul is dealing with what his practice is, is willing to give up his rights in order for the salvation of others. And so this thought here, be followers of me, may very well likely go with that same thought. He's saying to follow my example. Okay. So I would have no argument if someone said that verse 1 really belongs with the previous thought. But in verse 2, now I praise you. Notice there's a contrast between what he's saying here in verse 2 and what he's going to later say in, chapter, uh, in, in the same chapter in verse 17. When he talks about their practice of the Lord's Supper, he says, in that how they're practicing, I praise you not. Whatever they were doing there, he says, I don't praise you for what you're doing there. But here, he says, I praise you. So there's some things that the Corinthian church had done right, some things that the Corinthian church had done wrong. And so sometimes when, when brethren do right, they need to be praised for that, and when they don't, they need to be corrected for that. Now, when he says, keep the ordinances, I want you to see that... Um, there is a uniform teaching that is found in the Scripture, especially in this book. Look at, look at just the, the first few cases here of showing how the, the, the apostle is directing the Corinthians to follow what the apostolic doctrine teaches. If you recall, Jesus told the apostles he would send the Holy Spirit to guide them into all truth. And then when the apostles were given that, they then gave that to the people. And so when Paul is saying, keep the ordinances, well, he's talking about the teachings that he received of the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 1, if you recall, that Paul said that the things that he is writing to them was something that applied everywhere. Some people might have the view that when they look at 1 Corinthians, they might think, well, this only applies to the church in Corinth. 
Yet, there are several places in this uh, book where he's talking about how it applies to us today. He says, with all that in every place. Later in chapter 16, he says, as I've given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. So whatever he wanted the church of Galatia to do, he wanted the church at Corinth to do. Paul did not teach one gospel to one group and then another gospel to another, or one set of instructions for one church and then another somewhere else. Also, in chapter 4, he said, I'm going to send you Timothy, who's going to remind you of my ways, as I teach everywhere in every church. The things that Paul is teaching in this book, he taught everywhere. And so this is not something just simply unique to the church in Corinth. So there is a uniform teaching that I want you to see. Notice also that when you talk about the example of the apostles, what they hand down, the apostles had an authority. Okay, so Paul is telling them when he says, I beseech you, he's not meaning him personally. He's not meaning that he has some authority that originates within himself. He's talking about the authority that was handed to him by God. And so when he tells you to follow his example as he follows Christ, that's the point. If Paul were to not follow Christ, okay, then don't follow his example. But he says, follow me. Well, that would also apply here. When Paul taught the truth, follow his example. But I want you to also see that the term traditions that's found in verse 2, or ordinances. Verse 2 says, keep the ordinances. That word, ordinances, is, is in the Greek means traditions. But you've got to understand, sometimes people think of traditions as either a good thing or a bad thing. Well, it can be either or, depending on the situation. A tradition simply means something that's handed down. That's all it means. Now, some things are handed down by men. Some things are handed down by God. Now, what we've got to determine is which is which. Now, when men hand down traditions, well, that originates from men. Well, that's not something that we need to bind on others. When God hands something down, well, then that's something that he expects us to keep. For example, in uh, Matthew chapter 15, you have the example of the Pharisees who had their man-made traditions. One of those traditions were they had this ceremonial washing before they ate. And the washing of pots and cups and, and the other things that he, he draws out of their attention. But they wanted to bind those man-made traditions upon others. And they're thinking Jesus is breaking something whenever... He didn't do what they did. And Jesus calls them out for that. Well, no, you need to understand. He says, why do you break the commandment of God for your tradition? Well, we need to not do that. We need to not take something simply because that's the way we've always practiced and think that's the way it always needs to be. If men has started something or originated something, we don't need to bind that on others. But if God hands it down, for example, here in, in 1 Corinthians 11, when he says, as I delivered them to you, he's talking about by his apostolic, apostolic authority given by the Holy Spirit that he's handed down to them. And in 2 Thessalonians, 
In chapter 2, he talks about how that you need to follow the traditions or the ordinances that we've given you through this epistle. And if anyone does not follow the things that we hand down to you, meaning the apostles hand down to you, then note that man. And then in 2 Thessalonians 3, he says if someone walks disorderly and not after the traditions which he received of us, well, what's he talking about? He's not talking about the man-made traditions. He's talking about what the Holy Spirit gave the apostles and then they gave it to them. He says those are the ones that they need to follow. So again, just making the point, we've got to make a distinction here between what's handed down by men, what's handed down by God. So don't be thrown off by the term ordinances or traditions, depending on how your translation reads. If Paul is handing it down through the Holy Spirit, then it's something to be kept. Verse 3, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, the head of Christ is God. Now, we've got to define some terms here. The word head can have two different meanings. It can be talking about my physical head, or it can be talking about someone who is in authority over another. And interestingly, I believe that this passage is giving both senses, depending upon where it's being used. When he says, the head of every man is Christ, he's not saying my physical head, this head right here that you're looking at, that's not Christ. So, common sense. But Jesus is in authority over me. So that's what he means there. But then when he talks about a covering, well, then there he's talking about my physical head. Okay, so whether or not a man's head, physical head is covered or a woman's physical head is covered, will determine whether or not they honor their, the one in authority over them. Okay, so two different senses of the term head. Now, also, the word man and the word woman can have two different uses. The word in the Greek can mean a, simply a male of any age. Or it can mean a husband. And so the you have to determine by the context. Is he only talking about married men here or is, he only talking, or is he talking about all men? Same thing about the word woman. The word woman can mean a female, could, whether or not she's a virgin or whether or not she's married. So, or it could be talking about wives. Okay, so it, context must determine. The word itself doesn't settle, you know, which way... It has to be, because the word can be used either way. We have, sin and we have words that can be used multiple ways in our English. So the word woman, again. Uh, now, if you want to know what I believe the passage is teaching, I believe that it would apply to all men and all women, regardless of whether they're married or not. But, as we go through this, notice also that the word dishonor in verse 4. Every man praying or prophesying having his head covered dishonoreth his head. So there's the, there's the dishonor issue. Now, dishonor, some say bring shame, some, say, some versions say disgrace. 
Well, some may think that this is determined by a culture. Well, or I believe that it's determined by what the Lord says. If God says it brings a disgrace or it brings shame, then it, then it does. Whether I am embarrassed of it or ashamed of it or not. There are times in Scripture where some people were ashamed to blush when they did wrong. Someone might not feel guilty even though they have done wrong, such as the case with sins of ignorance. Uh, some, such as the case if somebody is calloused or such as the case, you know, you do sometimes things unintentionally. But if God says it's shameful, then it is. And the reason why some things are shameful is the matter of headship. And I really think this is key to understand this passage. When you think about headship, and shame and how it relates. In verse 4, he says, when a man, when his physical head is uncovered, or covered, sorry, when his physical head is covered, he dishonors his head, which is Christ, when he prays or prophesies. So, if, if a man is praying or prophesying, now, I recognize that sometimes people will say, well, we don't prophesy today because we don't have prophets. But we do pray today. And so what I would say is that if a man is praying, he should not cover his head or he's going to dishonor Christ. For this reason, if I were wearing a hat, I would simply remove my hat before I prayed. And... Here's, here's what I want to point out while, while we're here. In our culture, that's not necessarily offensive. Now, it might be changed somewhat from the way it has been viewed in the past in our country. But for a long time, many of us can remember when you came into a building, a man would remove his hat. Or, or at a ball game, you remove your hat before you even say the Pledge of Allegiance or before there's a moment of silence or a prayer. It is customary in our country, and it's more acceptable for some reason for men to remove a head covering of some type whenever they pray. But in our culture, it's not as readily accepted. It's, and, and so when, whenever you're thinking about this, suppose, I mean, we've got a variety probably of views in the audience even today. And so I recognize that this is probably an easier subject for me as a man to grapple with and deal with than probably the, the ladies in the audience. And what I want to encourage you is, is whether or not a culture views it as acceptable or not, try, try to lay that aside to the best of your ability. And I, and I also recognize when you're dealing with something like a, a woman's hair, whether it's the style or the length or what you put on it, sometimes that can be an emotional thing for a woman and might possibly care too much about what others view about them depending upon what they do. And so this is where I, I think in our current climate, it's a little more difficult for a lady 
But that doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. Either way, a man needs to decide if the culture said one thing but the Bible said another, I would have to say I want to follow whatever the passage teaches even if it was accepted in the culture or not. If, if, and if I was a woman, if I was in this culture and someone might view me a certain way or not, I would have to decide what does the passage teach and whatever that says. And whatever maybe my sisters or, or other women might view me a certain way, depending upon which side that falls on, I would have to decide, I just want to please the Lord. I just want to do whatever it's teaching. And so I believe this is saying that if a woman is praying, then she should cover her head with something, with some artificial covering when she prays. And I don't believe, the passage does not clarify whether or not this is dealing with the assembly or not. And I recognize, and I'm, I'm, I'm covering a lot of subjects here to try to deal with it, but there are some who think that because he talks about the Lord's Supper later in the chapter that he's only dealing with things when we're coming together in an assembly. And I recognize that view and that consideration. But I don't believe praying applies only to an assembly. And so for this reason, if I was in public and I had a hat on as a man, if I was going to pray, I would remove my hat. If I went into my closet, I was by myself and I had my hat on, I would remove my hat before I prayed. And I believe whatever the passage is teaching for the man, it's teaching the opposite for the woman. And I, so, in other words, if I was a woman, if I was praying, whether that was leading a prayer or whether that was being led in a prayer, the passage doesn't say. It does not limit it to whether a passage is being led or, or hearing or j simply being a part of the prayer. And since women are not to lead in a prayer, according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, for this reason, I don't believe the passage is limited to an assembly because I don't believe women would lead a prayer in an assembly with men present due to 1 Timothy 2. And we don't have a whole lot of time to deal with that passage, but I'm just making that point. That's why I don't believe the passage is only limited to an assembly. So wherever a woman is uh, praying doesn't matter whether the prayer is being led or not. So, if I was a woman, anytime I prayed, public or private, I would remove my, my, I would put a covering on my head. Now, the reason why I believe that this is talking about an artificial covering is because when he, he uses it for an occasion, he says, when she prays, or when he prays. Well, that's something you do for an occasion. If, now, sometimes people will say he's, he's talking about the hair only. And incidentally, that used to be my view. When I used to read this passage, my understanding at that particular time was I thought that as long as a woman had long hair, that's her covering and as long as she has long hair, 
then she doesn't need an artificial covering. That's what I used to think. Until I really started thinking here that he's talking about something you do for an occasion. What, if I said, it's raining outside, so I told one of my kids, it's raining outside, so cover your head when you go out. Well, you would understand, I'm not saying grow hair all of a sudden to a certain length. You're, you would understand that I'm talking about something you do for an occasion, so it's something else that you're putting on and taking off. I believe that's why he's dealing here with an artificial covering of some kind. Now, does he say what that is? Does he spell out the details of how, what that covering is? Now, some of the translations say veiled or unveiled. Some of them say covered or uncovered. When you look at that word, it doesn't say whether it is what the color is. It doesn't say you know, what the length is. It doesn't say whether it's something that you can see through. It doesn't say whether it's like made out of lace or whether it's made out of cotton it, or, or, or whatever the material is. It doesn't tell any of the style. All it says is covered or uncovered. So I don't want to specify something that the, it doesn't say. And I don't want to bind something on the details of that, um, that that's not there. So it says covered or uncovered, or veiled or unveiled. So I don't want to make too much about the actual covering material. But just say a man should not have it when he prays, and a woman should. Or else what's at stake is this sense of shame and dishonor. Now whether I understand this, how would I dishonor my head, Christ, if I wore something on my head when I prayed to, to God? You know, I don't know. He just says it does. So the best I know to do is just not dishonor him. And so that's what I practice. Now, I know that if I remove my hat before I pray, I have never had someone tell me, Andy, you need to put a hat on when you pray. I've, ne I've never had that happen to me. Now, I'm not saying it can't happen, but I'm just saying it's never happened to me. There are for some reason, though, I don't know why, but there are some who are bothered when they see a woman put, her, put a covering on her head before she prays. Maybe because they associate that with the Amish or Mennonites, maybe because they associate that with those in the Middle East, maybe those in a Muslim religion, and they don't want to be associated with that, so for, for that reason they decide, I don't want to do that. Well, what I would want to tell you is, is don't let that be the deciding factor of why you do or do not what the passage is saying. You can't let what others do determine what this passage is saying. I don't abstain from door knocking because Mormons door knock. I will knock on doors uh, because it works. We have one here present who's been baptized. He, and he's, and he's here today because we knocked on his door and he has received the gospel and he was baptized. But 
But I don't say, well, the Mormons do that, so I better not do that. Or the Jehovah's Witnesses do that, so I better not do that. So I don't refrain from some activity simply because somebody else does that. Um, so don't do that here is what I'm saying. If you, if, if you come to the, the conclusion of whatever you come to, don't come to it because of you don't want to look like somebody else is what I'm trying to say. I think you get the point there. But it is a dishonor, and I don't want to dishonor my head. And a godly woman would not want to dishonor her head. Now, in order to really understand this passage as we continue here, uh, the word shame, and sometimes people see the word, it says, if it be a shame, they think that means it's optional. They think that means if it's a shame to you, but if it's not a shame to someone else, then maybe you could just make up your mind and decide, and whatever you decide is okay. I don't think that's his point. I think the idea of shame is more like since it is a shame. And actually, one of the translations says that, since it is a disgrace, or since it is a shame. And the other passages talk this way. If, if this, then this. And his point is, if it's a shame for a woman to be shaven, then let her be covered. And so the, really the question I would have to ask the ladies is, if, if you have a sense of what is proper for a woman, if you know in yourself that there would be something out of the way by just buzz-cutting your hair, exceptions of someone who has chemotherapy and her hair is falling out or, or, or some other reason, uh, we, I think we understand there's a difference between a health situation and someone who, who can't you know have hair there's no there's no shame in a woman who has cancer now she might feel embarrassed she might feel a certain way but she hasn't done anything wrong I want to clarify that surely we would know that just it, 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 that might feel something we have compassion on a woman who cares about her appearance in that way and if her hair starts falling out I, we ought to show sympathy to a woman in that case but that doesn't mean that if some women have that 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 means all should do the thing or not similarly we're taught to sing aren't we we use our mouth in praising God with our lips well suppose someone could not talk maybe they were mute we don't base someone's uh, predicament where they can't do something and we don't apply that to all who can do we if someone's mute we don't say well nobody needs to confess Christ with their mouth or nobody needs to sing or nobody needs to pray we don't, we don't make those arguments for any other thing so we shouldn't make that argument here uh, so I hope you get the point there if a woman can't grow her hair longer, I don't think she should be faulted. The choice is the, is the thing at uh, play here, not whether she can or can't. Now, also this matter of headship. When he gets to chapter 11, 
verse 7. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. Really, to understand this, you've got to go back to the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, uh, in 27, God said, let us make man in our image. And God made man in his image. That's the design of God from the beginning. God made man after his likeness. He formed man from the dust of the ground, breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, he became a living soul. So man was formed by God in the image of God. Okay, then later in chapter 2, you see that it was not good that the man should be alone. So God made a woman out of Adam's rib. Put man to sleep, put, the, put Adam to sleep, took his rib, and formed the woman from the man. And that's his point here in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 11. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Some of your translations may even say originates from. Okay. So here's the order, here's the design of creation that man's in the image of God. Woman is made from man. And then who is created for who is also at play in verse 9. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. This goes to Genesis 2, uh, verse 18, when he says, It's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. You see, animals were already there, but there was something missing. And so he made a woman for the man. Not the other way around. Now, he clarifies later, though, because sometimes I could hear people getting offended. What do you mean? A woman's made for a man, not man for woman. Well, that, that's what it says. But he's not saying that we're, we're, not in, I mean, that we're not dependent upon each other. Every man, consequently, since them, has come from a woman and a man. So... And the man and the, the husband and wife need each other, so it's not that we're independent of each other. We, we both need each other, and that's the point he makes. Uh, that neither is the man without the woman. So, so we're not independent. We both need each other. So really, if you look at the design of God, the order of creation, God is head over Christ. That's the order. That he's in authority. Jesus said, my father is greater than I. They're both part of deity, the father and the son. They're both part of the Godhead. But the father's in authority over Christ. Christ is in authority over man. Man is in authority over the woman. Now, the culture doesn't determine that. Now, some people in some cultures don't like that. But the culture doesn't determine the headship issue. The issue is determined by God who said this is the order. And this is the reason he says to do it. He doesn't say do this because the culture says. He says do this because of headship. So the passage is not uh, dependent upon the culture of Corinth. And more about that later in another lesson. But the man is created for the woman or man, uh, man, man is created by God, the woman is created for man, and then they need each other. 
Now, then he says, the angels. Well, because of the angels. I, I'll confess here, I don't really know for sure what his meaning is. But I'll say this. A few facts that I know about angels. I know angels care about us. I know they watch. I know angels are above us. Some did not keep their first estate. I know they look into the things concerning man. And so whether which of those or all of those are put together to determine why the angels are mentioned here, either way, I'll say this, that the angels have nothing to do with the culture. He would say, do this because of the angels. He doesn't say, do this because of the culture. Uh, also, he says in verse 11, judge in yourselves. Now, sometimes people will say, again, they'll think this means you get to decide, what, and whatever you decide is okay. I don't think that's his point. In, in verse 13, judge in yourselves. Is it comely that a woman pray to God uncovered? I believe his point is, based upon all the information he's given you, who was created first, who was created for who, 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 who was made for the pur you know, that purpose because of the angels, because of the sense of shame, and all of those reasons that have nothing to do with culture, have nothing to do uh, with, with those things, based upon that information, you decide now, is it comely that a woman prays to God uncovered? That's his point. Now, Jesus used phraseology like this, didn't he? In Luke 12, Why even of yourselves judge you not what is right? Judge according to righteous judgment. Don't judge by appearance. Uh, in Acts 4, the apostle said, Whether it's right in the sight of God to obey you or obey God, you judge. Now, they weren't saying, Well, whatever you decide is okay with me. They were saying, you determine, which they expected them to understand there must be a proper conclusion. And I believe that's all that Paul is doing here. Based upon the information, you decide. And the point is, based on the information, a woman should cover her head and a man should not. And then notice, when he mentions the term comely, well, what determines whether something is comely? That's also translated as proper or fitting. What determines that? whether God says it is or not. Uh, Matthew 3, Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. It was proper. It becometh us. That word becometh is the same word in the Greek that's used comely uh, as comely here. Uh, when Paul said, let us not commit fornication but, or uncleanness or covetousness, but let us be... Let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. That word is the same here. Well, how do we know it's not proper for a saint to commit those kinds of sins? Well, because it's, it's written in the Scripture. Same thing here. What determines whether something is proper, comely, or fitting is based upon what he has given. And then he gives another example here of and, and I believe that this is one more reason why the man should not be covered with an artificial covering and the woman should. And he uses, does not nature itself teach you? Now the term nature here, you've got to define as well. It means 
can mean native conviction or knowledge, or it can mean by practice. So the context must determine. Well, which is it here? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 9, in verse 8, he talks about these creatures who had teeth like lions and hair like the hair of women. Now what I would like for you to do is just close your eyes. Try to picture what John saw in that revelation. What do you see? When you, when, when you picture the image that he's trying to tell you, teeth like lions, can you picture that? What does that look like? Hair like women, what does that look like? I think you understand the point. He's not talking about style necessarily. He's not talking about, he, I don't think he's talking about short hair. I think he's talking about long hair. You would picture that. And so if you get that point, then you should get it here, that if nature itself teaches you it's a shame for a man to have long hair, but it's a glory for a woman, what his point is, since nature teaches you that, that's another reason why the man should not wear the artificial covering and a woman should. Uh, his point is not to say that replaces or it's the only covering but to say that this is another reason why. And then he ends with, if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom. Now, some of the translations say we have no other practice. Well, first off, sometimes people will read that and then they'll, they'll, this is what they think it means. They think Paul is saying, He's, he's taught all this point all the way up to here, and then now when he gets to here, well, if somebody wants to make a big deal about everything I said, just forget everything I said. But does that make sense to you? Or does it make more sense that he's saying, based upon all the reasons that I've given you, if somebody wants to argue with apostolic teaching, if they want to be contentious and contend against what I've been teaching you, then we don't have any other practice, neither the churches of God. I believe that's his point. And, and, and to, to, to show you that Paul talks this way, uh, he, he talks that way many times when he says, uh, the things that we teach you, uh, or look, look at chapter 4, verse 17. He says, as I teach everywhere in every church, Chapter 7, verse 17. And so ordain I in all churches. When he talked about marriage, as it applied everywhere in every church, well, what apply that here? Also, 1 Corinthians 14. As in all churches of the saints. Uh, look at chapter 14 and notice this. Paul, Paul uses a similar argument. In chapter 14, he uses the... the the point about how that the, the women are to uh, remain silent. If they want to learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. And he, and he talks about that. But then, he, but then he, after he gives this instruction, he says that if anyone uh, thinks himself, verse, uh, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet, or spiritual, 
let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of God. Well, what's his point there? The things that I write unto you are the commandments of God. So somebody wants to argue with what I've been teaching, he's arguing with God. That's his point. I think he's making a similar point in 1 Corinthians 11. If someone wants to contend against what I've been teaching, we don't have that practice. We don't have what practice? The practice of doing what he's been saying to do? Would that make Paul himself a contentious one? Is Paul himself being contentious? Is, it would be my question. When, he, when Paul was teaching that a man should not cover his head and a woman should, was he being contentious? Well, if he wasn't, he was simply teaching what you should and shouldn't do, then someone else teaching that is not the one that he's referring to as the contentious one. The contentious one would be the one who argues with what he taught. And so that makes a whole lot more sense to me. And so our time is up, but I, I just wanted to uh, introduce the subject. I, I know I've went along, and I appreciate your patience. There's perhaps more to deal with, and you may have some more questions. Again, I want to say this. I want you to feel like I'm approachable. It's not like this is a taboo subject. It needs to be understood. It needs to be taught. But just to sum up, I believe that a man, whether in an assembly or out of an assembly, whether he's leading a prayer or whether he's a part of the prayer, he needs to not cover his head when he prays. And I believe a woman should cover her head. Or else we dishonor our head, whether that's Christ or, or, the, or the man, depending upon the situation. I appreciate your attention. Ultimately, we want you to understand the authority of God and obey Him regardless of what that is. Believe that the Lord is Christ. Repent of your sins. Confess your faith in Christ. Be baptized. And then live faithfully. And if for some reason you're a Christian and you differ with what I'm saying, let's show love toward each other. Let's be kind. You be my friend if you can teach me and show me where I've missed it. We'll talk some more, Lord willing. Whatever your need is, won't you come while we stand and as we sing?